Our reading this afternoon comes from Psalm 131, verses 1 through 3. This is what Holy Scripture says. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thanks be to God. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I'm David. I'm one of the pastors here, and I hope you're enjoying your Labor Day weekend. We're not beginning our sermon series in Luke until next week, so I had the freedom to pick any passage, any topic that I wanted to. And it didn't take me long to realize that I wanted to preach about contentment from Psalm 131. I approach this passage today not as someone who has arrived, not as someone who doesn't struggle with contentment. I'm still, I'm a fellow disciple like you, trying to learn to be content, for my heart is often discontent. So how about you? How many of you here struggle with being discontent? Are you satisfied with your job, with how much money is in your bank account, with the place where you're living? What about your relationship with your spouse, your girlfriend or boyfriend, or even your friendships? How about the way your kids are turning out? And how about your church? Don't answer that one. <laughs> one reason why we might struggle with discontentment is the culture in which we live. It's strange to think that about a century ago, and you economists might enjoy this, new techniques and technology led to mass production and actually the threat of overproduction. Companies were worried that they were producing products so cheaply and so efficiently that soon everyone would have what they needed. Can we even imagine that today? It is well documented that there was a conscious effort from both businessmen and government officials to create a consumer culture so that these goods might be consumed and the economy stimulated. Paul Mazur, one of, the chief, one of the chief architects of this culture, said in 1927, quote, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old has been entirely consumed. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. And sadly, that's a spot-on description of our culture today. With the rise of mass media and advertising, there's not a single day, maybe not even a single moment, where we're not exposed to advertising that is meant to stir discontentment in our hearts. Whether it's watching TV, driving past a billboard, or scrolling through your Instagram feed, all these things are designed to create desire and want for more and more. And as Americans, we are certainly at a disadvantage because we're, we are not only the country that created this consumer culture, but other, also other aspects of our culture, such as the incredible social mobility that we enjoy, also creates a double-edged sword. I remember a conversation not long ago that I had with a friend who, who grew up in the U.S. but was now studying in the U.K., and he was attending grad school there, and he described how all his... European friends who were also in grad school, would, they would often have these long political discussions about 
all sorts of topics, and they would critique many aspects of American life. But they all admitted that America was a land of opportunity and mobility, where someone with a brilliant business idea could catapult themselves into incredible wealth and social standing despite their background, education, or family history. Now this too can lead to discontentment because our culture of opportunity can lead to a culture of ambition. Be discontent, be restless, be hungry so you can have the life you want, is what we're told. The once negative character qualities of discontentment and restlessness have been flipped into positive qualities in our culture, as seen in this quote by Thomas Edison. You can also find it at the front of your bulletin. He says, restlessness is discontent, and discontent is the first necessity of progress. Show me a thoroughly satisfied man, and I will show you a failure. So is the current winter of our discontent just a fact of our time and culture? Are we the unfortunate ones who have to struggle with discontentment while those in the past lived peacefully on their family farm or on a sleepy village, content to be the farmer or blacksmith like their father, grandfather, and great-grandfather before them? Well, we can say it can, most likely it is harder to be content because of our culture today. Discontentment is not a new problem at all. In some sense, advertising is so effective, not because we have to learn how to desire in the first place, but because the desire for more is already within us. I know that discontentment doesn't need to be taught because whenever I see my nine-month-old daughter, Arden, I see how she responds to toys. And by toys, I mean basically anything because she's at that stage where any object is a toy. And whenever she's given something new, it's amazing how quickly she gets bored of it and how, quick, how ready she's, and how if you offer another toy to her, she's already ready to move on to that new thing. There are even times when she's given two objects and she holds both in one hand, in each hand, and there's a sense of confusion as she tries to stuff both of them in her mouth because she just wants it all, right? She just wants everything that, that is offered to her. And we also know that discontentment is not limited to our time and culture because in ancient Israel, before advertising, before consumeristic culture, God gave this commandment as the last of the Ten Commandments because he knew how sin had corrupted our very nature. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. After all, the, first, the very first sin even can be seen through the lens of discontentment. The devil tempted Adam and Eve with the false promise that by disobeying God and eating of the forbidden fruit, they would become like God. They became discontent even when they had what should have been all satisfying, the very presence of God. Adam and Eve coveted God's power and status and were dissatisfied with their circumstances. They wanted more. So my encouragement to you this afternoon is to not be like Adam and Eve and to not believe the lies of our culture. Being discontent is not a good thing. In fact, it makes us miserable. But not only that, it doubts the goodness of God. It's rooted in a lack of trust in his plan and in his love. Discontentment leads us away from God 
and from the joy that can only be found in him. So friends, let's pursue the virtue, the forgotten virtue of contentment together and let's take it seriously. So how do we get there? What is the path to true contentment? That brings us to our passage for today, Psalm 131, a mere three verses. But Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher and pastor, said this about this psalm. It is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the hardest psalms to learn. And Psalm 131 lays out the path we must learn if we are to be content. So what does this path to contentment look like? Well, first, the path goes down. The path goes down. In verse 1, David the psalmist says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things that are too great and too marvelous for me. Here David is modeling the path that goes down. The path of humility. And what is this path? Well, first of all, humility rejects inward pride. And we see that in the phrase, my heart is not lifted up. Those with lifted up hearts have an inflated view of themselves. And because our hearts are, de are deceitful, most of us probably don't seriously think that we are the smartest, the most attractive, the most successful, most witty person in the whole wide world. Yet, just because we've avoided thinking of ourselves in that particular way, it doesn't mean that we're not prideful. A lot of us mask our pride behind false modesty. Those of us who are Asian American know all about false modesty because our parents are experts in it. <laughs> I'm sure somewhere this is being said at this very moment from one Asian parent to another. Maybe other cultures can relate as well. My daughter is not that smart. She didn't get a perfect GPA, a 4.9 actually, <laughs> and she was waitlisted at Harvard. She's going to Yale next year. She definitely needs to work harder in college. But unfortunately, false modesty is now kind of, a, kind of a thing in our culture, which is why there's been hashtag humblebrag for a while, if you've heard of this. Celebrities on Twitter are getting into the false modesty game, competing with the Asian parents. Joe Jonas had this tweet. Totally walked down the wrong escalator at the airport from the flashes of the cameras. Go me. <laughs> So, I mean, not most, I don't, I don't need to explain it. I'm not going to explain it. You just have to figure it out. All right. Jared Leto said this, just won GQ style award in Germany. Obviously, they made a mistake. I wonder how long till they come take it back. Winking smiley face. And the next example I give, not to criticize him, but just to show that none of us are immune from, from this, Rick Warren. I'm truly humbled you follow my tweets. I pray they enrich your life and strengthen your ministry. God bless all 200,000 of you. <laughs> and it, this tweet was back in 2011, so that, that was a lot of followers back then. <laughs> and while it can be easy to see pride in others, are you deceiving yourself into thinking that you're doing pretty well when it comes to pride? How do you handle criticism? I'll be the first to confess that I handle it very poorly. I get defensive. I snap back, I rationalize, I blame others. All of that reveals pride in my heart. Are you offended when you're not recognized, such as being passed over for a promotion or not being praised for your accomplishments? 
How is your attitude towards authority figures in your life? Do you talk behind their back? Do you resent them? A prideful heart leads to discontentment because you think you deserve better than what the world has given you, and behind that, what God has given you. Humility also rejects pride towards others. My eyes are not raised too high. Here, a lifted up heart expresses itself by looking down on others. What is your attitude like towards others? Do you have a harsh and critical spirit? Do you avoid conversations with certain people because they are awkward, strange, or boring? Do you see others as obstacles or assets for your agenda? And even those who have a low view of themselves can be prideful towards others. Christian counselor David Pallison had this to say about these verses. Pride says, I'm right in myself. Haughty eyes say, I'm right compared to you. Have you ever noticed that even people who feel lousy about themselves are judgmental towards others? When you feel inferior to others, you don't admire and respect them or treat them with merciful consideration. Instead, you envy, hate, nitpick, grumble, and criticize. Even self-belittling tendencies, low self-esteem, self-pity, self-hatred, timidity, fearfulness, diffidence, fears of failure and rejection, fundamentally express pride failing. Pride intimidated, pride despairing. Such pride, even when much battered, still finds someone else to look down on. Beyond that, comparing yourself with others is a well-worn path to discontentment. And when we compare ourselves with others, pride is always present, lurking beneath the surface. For instance, I'm just as smart as them, or even smarter. Why is their life so much better? They're not that great at parenting, so why are their kids more well-behaved? Do you see the pride in those comparisons? And lastly, humility rejects attempts to be God. And we see this in the phrase, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. In Job 5.9, Job describes God as he who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Like Job, David here recognizes that the, the, that the domain of great and marvelous things belong to God alone. Perhaps you may be thinking, I don't have this problem. I can admit to pride, but I don't try to be God. But you do. I do. We all do. We all have this problem. We try to be God when we pursue that which is out of our hands, that, that's what, which is out of our control. And I'm not talking about grand schemes of world domination. It could be as simple as trying to force someone in your life to change, to control their attitude and behavior. And how many of us approach our problems as if we were God? We whip ourselves into a frenzy, planning, researching, strategizing, depending on our skills, our resources, our wisdom. One of Satan's greatest lies is seducing us to think that we have more control than we do. We need to see reality for what it is, to see us for who we are, finite, frail, limited, and to see God for who he is, the sovereign sustainer of the universe and every aspect of life. And when we do, it brings rich meaning to that familiar phrase from the Lord's Prayer, give us our daily bread, for even that 
is too great and too marvelous for us. It's fitting that this psalm is attributed to King David because in the story of his life, Samuel anointed him as king, and yet Saul, who had been rejected, the king before him, had been rejected by God as the king, refused to give up the throne. So for 10 long years, David was pursued as a fugitive, living out of caves in danger for his life, even though he was a true king. Not only that, he had opportunities to take Saul's life, yet he held back his hand. James Boyce, former pastor at 10th Pres in Philadelphia, had this comment. He allowed God to give him the kingdom of Israel in God's own time and way, even though the crown had been promised to him many years before. And it's not that David didn't cry out and question God in the midst of his difficult circumstances. Many of the Psalms, full of distress, were written during this phase of his life when he was on the run. But he did not try to take things into his own hands. He did not demand God to tell him when the kingdom would be his. Are you discontent with your lot in life, your station in life, where God has placed you? Do you look at your life and ask, ask God, why are things the way they are? Is your heart noisy with demands, sighs, anxieties, fears about the present and future? I know that I can answer yes to all these questions, maybe not all the time, but far more frequently than I should. Such is a sign that I am occupied with things too great and too marvelous for me. I want the answers. I want things to be different when God is saying, trust my promises, my timing, and my will. So to trust God, to be satisfied in everything he has given, and more importantly, all of who he is, is ultimately the antidote to the poison of our discontentment and is part of the path to contentment. The path goes down as we cultivate humility by the grace of God, rejecting and killing our pride and our attempts to be God, and the path goes up as we learn to be satisfied in our Heavenly Father alone. The path goes up. In verse 2, David says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Does that seem impossible to you? For many of us, to have a calm and quiet soul is so far from the noisy, turbulent reality of, our current, of the current state of our soul that we may be tempted to give up before we even started. But be encouraged that this can be learned, to have a calm and quiet soul, a contented soul, and it's not an impossible task. David learned it, and so did the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4, 11, Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He learned this. It didn't come naturally. He didn't just fall into it. He learned it. So how do we learn to have a calm and quiet soul, to be content in any situation? Well, verse 2 goes on to say, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. This is one of the instances in scripture where God is compared to a mother. David is able to calm and quiet his soul because he is finding satisfaction in God, just as a child finds satisfaction in their mother. Now there's something almost magical about the way in which a mother can soothe a restless or crying child. 
Perhaps this psalm resonates more with me these days because, again, I see how my daughter Arden is so comforted and so at peace when she's with Jessica, my wife. Whether it's a tumble from trying to stand up or stranger danger, Arden's place of comfort and satisfaction is in mommy's arms. But now notice something a little bit puzzling. David compares himself to a particular type of child, a weaned child. Until I studied the psalm, I never understood why David used the illustration of a weaned child. After all, wouldn't a nursing child be a greater image of dependence? A nursing child depends on their mother for everything, for even life itself. Wouldn't that be a more powerful picture of dependence on God? But while being a child before God is a picture of dependence, a weaned child brings out the idea of contentment more beautifully because a weaned child wants their mother simply for the comfort, peace, and joy of the mother herself. There is no other motive. When an unweaned child who still drinks their mother's milk is hungry, the mother's presence is actually not enough to soothe the fussy, restless, discontent child, not until they get the milk that they want. But a weaned child can come up to their mother, curl up in their lap, and demand nothing. A weaned child is simply content to be with her mother. Boys and girls, did you know that you can teach your parents this powerful lesson of contentment when you go to them and you ask to be held not because you want that extra slice of cake for dessert or because you want to ask them for that toy or video game that you've been eyeing at the store or because you've been grounded and you want to shorten your sentence, but simply going to them because you love them and because you find satisfaction in just being with them. You can do that today. You can do that tonight and give them a powerful picture of what this psalm is trying to teach. To be satisfied in God alone, not because of what he can give us, is the path and what lies at the end of that path to true contentment. However, this is far easier said than done, as with almost everything. We only need to look at David's life to get a glimpse of this problem. We don't know at what point in his life this psalm was written, but while David certainly had great trust and contentment with God at certain points in his life, there were also great moments of discontentment where his heart was noisy and restless and far from that of a weaned child. 2 Samuel 11 recounts how one spring afternoon, much later in his reign, when David should have been at battle, he was instead wandering the rooftops and he saw a beautiful woman bathing. His heart stirred with lust and desire and discontentment. He was not satisfied with what God had given him, and ultimately he was not satisfied with God alone. And if you know the tragic story, David's coveting of his neighbor's wife led to adultery, lying, murder, and death for many, as sin spread and affected David's whole family and the nation of Israel. So while David sings the psalm, he recognizes that even in our struggle for contentment, our hope is not in our effort, the exercise of the will to still the noise of fear and anxiety in our lives. Our hope is in the Lord. That is his call to the people of God. O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Verse 3, hope in the Lord from this time forth 
and forevermore. David directed the Old Testament worshipers away from him, the king, to the true king. Regardless of when he wrote this psalm, David must have known that he could not have been that perfect example of contentment. But there is another who sang the words of of this psalm, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, and who after long trying days surrounded by people would slip away into the wilderness to find comfort and peace in the presence of God. This is David's greater son, the true singer of this psalm, the Lord Jesus, who is our hope. For Jesus knows what it's like to be a weaned child, restful in his mother's arms, because he entered into our humanity, into our experience. He knows how difficult life can be, heartbreak, loss, toil, trouble, and how it can agitate our souls. But he not only entered into our experience as a man, he is the king of creation, who can still a raging sea with the words, peace, be still. And the sea became as calm as glass. And he is also the king of our hearts, our gentle savior who stills our raging hearts when he says, know that I have set my love upon you before even the world began. Everything that you're looking for, acceptance, peace, security, meaning, it's all found in me Come into my presence, climb into my arms, find contentment in me alone. How does a child begin to love their mother for who she is and not for what they can get from her? It's when they begin to understand the beauty and goodness of who she is. We begin to love Jesus for who he is when we begin to understand that though Jesus lived out perfect contentment in his father's arms, even while he walked this earth, he lost that perfect intimacy on the cross. He was thrown out into the darkness of God's wrath and judgment against our sin, including our discontentment. He was cast out so that even when we are discontent and proud and our heart is full of noise, we will not be cast out of Eden like Adam and Eve. Instead, we can sing with utmost confidence this song of David and this song that is ultimately of Jesus, knowing that our elder brother Jesus, he lived this for us so that we can too. Let the beauty of Jesus' love and God's amazing grace re-amaze you today. Let it enthrall and captivate your hearts so that your affections for the things of this world seem foolish and pale, And you are satisfied once again with God alone. As we end, I want to give two ways we can get real practical with the psalm and its lesson of contentment. First, memorize the psalm. It's only three verses. We often read scripture and think, that sounds really good, but I'm not really sure how it's relevant or how it applies to my daily grind. But if you memorize these three verses... And recall them, turning them over in your mind before a meeting or an important conversation or maybe on your difficult commute, you will begin to see how deeply relevant God's word is to your life. How a verse or a phrase of a verse begins to take on color and meaning and depth that you've never known before, but it begins by having the words near to you. 
Second, read or recite the psalm before going to sleep. Trying to get real practical here. Many of us are running at 100 miles an hour throughout the day, and only when our heads hit the pillow do all the troubles of the day and the anxieties of tomorrow come rushing out, creating the noise and discontent in our hearts. That is a great time to read this psalm and then practice going down in humility and going up to God in satisfaction. We can humble ourselves by acknowledging our need for sleep, our inability to solve our problems, our inability to control the future, and we can find contentment in God by recalling his great love for us through Jesus Christ, his kingly reign over all things, his absolute faithfulness, his tender care for us, like a mother with her child. King's Church, be like a weaned child and put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess we are not a content people. I confess that I'm not a content person. There are so many things that I wish could be different, that I want, that I desire. And I pray, oh God, that you would would teach us that we are humble, that we are unworthy, that we are weak and frail, that we are limited, that we should not occupy ourselves with things too great and too marvelous for us. Those are in your hands. And let us rejoice that they are in your hands, that you hold the, you, you hold the whole world in your hands, as that children's song goes, and that we can trust in you. We can entrust our whole lives, everything all our fears, all our anxieties, everything that we're struggling with, we can entrust it to you. We can rest in you. We can know that you will not turn us away because of Jesus. Because Jesus lived this psalm and he died for our sins, that we might always have you. So we pray this in his name. Amen.